Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. In today's episode, we're talking with Nan Branzahoff, head of climate at Stripe, and Sean Drost, CEO at Diversified Hydrogen. We're going to cover topics such as carbon removal and how Stripe Climate is tackling this. And what exactly is hydrogen and how can it be used? Nan and Sean have great insight into the latest technologies, so I'm really excited for this conversation. Thank you both so much for joining. So to get us started, I'd love to have you each introduce yourselves and just tell the audience a little bit about your story and how you got to the role you're in today. Nan, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so I have been in and out of the climate space for the last 10 plus years, always in a product and business capacity. I worked at Opower and Nest, which were some of the kind of first-gen climate companies. I was at Uber Pool, and I'm now at Stripe, where we are trying to build a market for carbon removal in the absence of policy. How I got to my current role, a couple of years ago, was reading the 2018 IPCC report. And one of the things that really jumps out in that report is, in addition to massive amounts of emissions reduction, we are now also going to have to do a huge amount of carbon removal. And this ecosystem is really far behind for a number of reasons that we can talk about. One of the things that stuck out to me was without large-scale policy in place that effectively put some sort of price or tax on carbon, who is buying the carbon removal? Who is essentially acting as the demand side of that market? So I became obsessed with this question of how do you build a market for carbon removal in the absence of policy? Around the same time, Stripe was starting to think about the same or similar version of the question and had made this negative emissions commitment to spend a million dollars helping new technologies get down the cost curve. And ultimately, after a few conversations with them, turned out this was a much bigger opportunity than anybody had initially thought and joined to see if we can take a shot on goal here. Sean, what about you? I know you have a different entrance into the climate tech world. I'm actually brand new to climate and energy work. My background is in software. I worked as an engineer and team lead for many years before founding Hack Reactor. And I spent most of the last decade building that company and ultimately selling it and stepping out in late 2019. Hack Reactor is a coding bootcamp. And how I made my way from software and education to the climate space was pretty circuitous. I did about a year of consulting and learning, and I went to a climate bootcamp and did a survey, and not too dissimilar from Nan's story about how carbon removal started popping out to her as I was doing my survey of IPCC and other reports. How is this decarbonization process going to even work? How are we going to get this done? There's some big parts of the equation, wind and solar and batteries that are significantly underway. There are some giant question marks around like land use, the carbon removal, and hydrogen was another big piece of the equation. If you look at a think tank's picture of what does a decarbonized global economy look like? What does a net zero 2050 look like? How do we make and do everything that humans make and do without any carbon? A big part of the equation tends to be hydrogen, but these think tanks and groups of smart people will put forward in, in their net zero 2050 scenarios is for everything you can, you want to switch the grid over to renewable electricity, you want to switch residential heating and cooking and everything you can to electricity, you want to power cars with electricity, you want to power everything you can with electricity. And 
for everything else that is not convenient to electrify, there's a very short list of options, including biofuels and carbon capture and sequestration and just keep emitting, but do some negative emissions. And hydrogen is the last item on the list. And there is a kind of emerging consensus that there's a large scale role for hydrogen, perhaps 10 or 15% of the global energy system, which is big. It's an interesting space that I've been getting involved in and I've been working as a project developer. So my company, Diversified Hydrogen, develops utility scale green hydrogen projects for the transportation and power sectors. Yeah, it's been a winding road. Awesome. And before we get too deep in the conversation, can you just start, Sean, by explaining hydrogen to me if I were a child? There's something that Clay said that I liked, and that is that hydrogen is electricity in disguise. A lot of what we like about fossil fuels is that they are explosive and you can carry them around from place to place. And like a lot of how the world works is built around those properties. And electricity has somewhat different properties. You can't set fire to it and you can't carry it around very easily from place to place. And you need to use it at the exact same moment that you create it because of how the grid works. And the role of hydrogen in the energy transition is to turn electricity into molecular fuels. So if you zap water with electricity, it turns into hydrogen and oxygen. And the oxygen you can release and it's in the atmosphere. You can think of it like a clean burning natural gas. And so you can use it in all the same ways. You can put it in a pipeline, you can move it to some big industrial facility where they're making concrete and burning huge amounts of fossil fuels today. And you can replace that molecular fuel that carries carbon and all these harmful emissions with hydrogen. And when hydrogen combusts, the main byproduct is distilled water, plain old water. That's it in a nutshell. Thank you. So you both mentioned, and Clay mentioned this too, with lower carbon, just like reading IPCC reports, diving into the research, understanding the space. I'm curious, Nan, can you tell us a little bit more about the beginnings of Stripe entering this climate space? Because on face value, folks might be like, what is a company like Stripe doing in the carbon removal space? Tell us about that journey. Stripe's journey into climate generally started in 2017 when Stripe became carbon neutral. And since then, we've paid a lot of attention to the climate science and tried to incorporate new information as it comes up. One of the things that really stands out in the 2018 IPCC report is the second big lever that we have of carbon removal becomes really important. Before going deeper with Stripe, let's kind of take a step back and look at the carbon removal ecosystem. So you can think about this broadly as supply and demand. And supply are all the companies that are doing carbon removal and the different technologies. So planting trees, enhanced weathering, direct air capture, et cetera, et cetera. On the demand, these are companies that are buying the things that these companies are selling. And if you look at the ecosystem today, the whole thing is quite nascent and rather stuck in the mud. Part of the reason that it's been stuck in the mud is we don't have buyers on the demand side that are making those purchases. And as a result, you have a lot of really early stage technologies on the supply side that are expensive, they're low volume, they have a hard time getting funding. And so the idea behind Stripe's first million dollars was we're going to take ultimately a relatively little amount of money and we are going to spend it not looking for the lowest cost carbon removal. We are going to look for technologies that are promising, that have the ability to be low cost, high volume, and permanent in the future, but they might not be there today. And we are going to spend that money helping them get down the cost curve and accelerate those learning curves. That was the thesis. Two things happened. 
the first thing that happened was the carbon removal community generally had a surprisingly positive reaction, which is mostly a testament to the fact that this field is so starved for capital that a million dollars would raise anybody's eyebrows. The second thing that happened was we got a bunch of Stripe users reaching out to us. So Stripe is an economic infrastructure company. We power payments for a million plus businesses all over the world. And a number of them reached out to us basically saying, hey, I wanted to do something in climate for a while, but I haven't gotten around to it. I haven't had time. Could we wire you some money and you go figure out what to do with it? Those two kind of insights or reactions ultimately became the genesis for Stripe Climate. We said, hey, we might have the opportunity to turn this million dollars into orders of magnitude larger if we can pool voluntary dollars from Stripe's ecosystem and spend that making the demand side market for carbon removal. In short, a combination of looking at the climate science, looking at where the field really was and saying, what assets can we bring to the table, so to speak, based on who we are as a company and what we believe needs to happen and how do we bring that together and and try to do something even more leveraged, even more impactful than Stripe and any one company could do by themselves. I'm curious, I guess it's so early. Have you seen any changes in the price on the supply side through creating this demand already? Or what's the time horizon on something like that? In general, we are going to have to be rather patient with this field. And that is true for science and hardware-shaped technologies generally. And we should think about this in five, 10 plus year increments. That said, we have seen really promising progress already. I'll give you a couple of examples. We purchased from four projects to date and we were the first customer for two of them. So this means previous to our purchases, these companies were just getting from R&D into the commercial phase. Charm Industrial is a company that pyrolyzes biomass and is inventing a new sequestration method of taking that resulting oil and sequestering it into the ground. This is bringing a new idea to market. And since our initial purchases alongside a couple of other companies, their cost has dropped actually by 12 or 13%. Another example, Climeworks is a slightly later stage company that we purchased from. We ended up purchasing about 10% of the capacity of their new plant, which is able to remove carbon at a much lower cost than their previous plant. So these are early examples of these technologies being able to demonstrate real improvements in rather short periods of time. A number of these companies have also gotten investments from firms, some of whom I think were looking for demand signaling to gain the confidence that this was a company or this is a space that they want to invest in. So I think we're starting to see the ecosystem moving, at least in part because of early purchasers like Stripe, Microsoft, Shopify, and a number of the other companies that are starting to do this as well. That's super exciting. Sean, I'm curious, how does the hydrogen space compare in regards to like current costs and this kind of demand curve that Nan was talking about in the removal space? I mean, it's a very different supply and demand curve selling into very different markets. And hydrogen is one of those sector spanning fuels that can be used in a lot of different markets. There's a lot of different answers. What we're seeing right now is that hydrogen really only matters when there are big subsidies from a sponsor country or in a few little weird economic niches where it makes a lot of economic sense right now. I'll give an example of forklifts. Hydrogen-powered forklifts have significant and gaining market share of all things. And that's because you can't really burn fossil fuels indoors. It's harmful (laughs) for totally non-climate related reasons. And for boring technical reasons, electric forklifts are irritating use. So one of the biggest use cases right now for hydrogen is hydrogen-powered forklifts. 
And in the projects that I'm developing, there are certain environmental incentives that are unusually valuable. Like in California, there's a carbon tax, there's a carbon price, but it's low. It's like in the $20 a ton region. And that's really not enough to fund most green replacements for fossil fuels. But if you look in certain niche markets, like in transportation, there are specialized environmental incentives. And in California, there's a system called the low carbon fuel standard that powers a lot of investment into low carbon transportation. And that is underwriting the business case for a lot of the projects that we're looking at diversified hydrogen. And that's just an example. I want to draw a comparison to the very different market that Nana is working within. When you have a technology that is trying to build upwards in scale and get to an important place and build a large market, you start with these weird bubbles in economic niches. And a lot of carbon removal technology companies right now are selling little carbon-producing machines to beverage companies or beer companies to get bubbles into their beverage. Finding these little corners of the world where you can make a business scaling your thing from 1 to 10 and then get it to 100. It's not a straightforward process and it resists simplification. And you brought up something I'm curious about. So you talked about carbon tax and incentives and and some policy incentives. And Nan, earlier you talked about you all stepped in because there wasn't the policy there is maybe what I picked up on you saying. And I'm curious how policy and incentives is or is not playing a role in the stripe climate work. If we look at the scale of carbon removal that the world is going to need, so the world emits about 50 gigatons every year. By 2050, we are going to need to be removing about 10 gigatons per year on an ongoing basis. It ranges from 2 to 20, depending on what you look at. That is a massive amount of carbon to be removing and storing somewhere ideally permanently. To get to that level scale, policy is almost certainly going to have to play a huge role. If you had a chance to listen to Clay's episode, I'm curious from both of your backgrounds and expertise, is there anything that they didn't cover when you think of breakthrough climate technologies that's worth chatting about and getting on the radar of our listeners that you're excited about or even skeptical about? I think one of the spaces that is particularly ripe for exploration is looking at natural processes that remove carbon and piggybacking off of those. How can we accelerate them, enhance them, exploit them, harness them? There's a whole field of ideas, in my opinion, that we've started to conceptualize, but we haven't fully brought to the table. I think because this field is so new, we have the kind of first level of ideas here, but we have only started to understand how deep this iceberg actually goes. And one of my hopes for this field over the next couple of years is that see more researchers, more entrepreneurs, more ideas that are brought to the table that even have the potential to hit these low-cost, high-volume targets in the future. And I believe that there are a lot of, again, potential opportunities in piggybacking on what nature already does so well already. I think that is generally an area that is underlooked, at least currently. When you say that, are you thinking soil, carbon removal, trees are an obvious one? The earth removes a lot of carbon naturally through rocks. And rocks generally capture and sequester carbon at a rate proportional to their surface area. So if you can grind up those rocks, you can actually get them to capture carbon at a much faster rate. So one of the companies that we purchased from Project Vesta, they take olivine and put it on high energy beaches. The waves grind up those rocks for free and the olivine captures 
carbon binds, turns it into rock and it's permanently stored. This is an example of something that has the potential to scale massively, has the potential to be very low cost. And it's, again, harnessing or piggybacking on what nature does already. Charm Industrial is, again, another example of this. Plants capture carbon for free, right? So if we can take that biomass and turn it into something where we can sequester it permanently, that is another really interesting pathway. The challenge with a lot of nature-based solutions today is they're not permanent, right? If a tree burns down, it releases that carbon back into the air. So figuring out how can we harness the best of what nature has and make it permanent is a really, in my opinion, generative frame for thinking about new potential carbon removal solutions. Sean, I'd be curious your thoughts. There's been all sorts of communities for startup founders, but most were in the early days of the climate tech communities. And I'm curious, as you've joined the climate tech space recently, how have you approached building a network, finding mentors, peers, and connections in the space? I've participated in a few different climate-oriented communities. There are a lot of great Slack channels out there. The New Energy Network is one. My Climate Journey is another. And I've also just done a lot of cold outreach. And I find that networking is a matter of putting in the effort and just reaching out. And I found folks really receptive and responsive. Some of my most fruitful kind of cold outreaches and emails to be very specific question-based. If I'm looking at something and doing a deep dive into a particular topic, reaching out to experts in that specific area has made the information density of those conversations particularly high to the extent that's useful for others. Yeah, that's super helpful for this audience. I did want to end on a hopeful note. What is giving you hope in the climate challenge that we're in right now? A couple of things are giving you hope. One, there are a lot of really talented, amazing folks who are increasingly interested in dedicating part or all of their career to this space. And I think that it is going to take a massive global effort to solve this crisis. That's one thing that gives me hope. Two, it does seem like the policy wheels, hopefully knock on wood, are starting to turn. And I think that policy is a massive lever in accelerating the speed at which we can actually get this done. And time really is of the essence here. I think there are so many exciting pieces of news coming out. And it's against a rather dire backdrop. We don't like the warming that has happened already. And the track we're on is really not sustainable. But against that backdrop, the amount of progress that I see happening day by day is incredible. Just this week alone, I feel like we've heard announcements from several major car companies that they are turning their attention to an electric-only future. We've seen the worst earnings quarters in the history of several oil and gas companies that are in, at this point, it seems like irreversible secular decline. I think there's a lot of reasons for optimism. It takes a long time to turn the ship around when it, the ship is the size of the entire planet and all the humans. But it does seem to be turning. And it's just incredible. It's incredible that we are making significant steps. I think it's very beautiful to watch. Yeah, and I feel a ton of hope by all the entrepreneurs I get to talk to and the folks like both of you and the work that you're doing at scale. And it's just an honor. So thank you both so much for joining us and all the work that you do in the world. If there's anything we can ever do, know that we're here to support. Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. Also, applications are open until May 16th for our Techstars Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with The Nature Conservancy. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.